Well, what a thrill to be here this morning. As uh, Marshall said, my name is Joe Riccardi. I pastor at Park Community Church in Lincoln Park. Know a lot of folks here, Alex and Katie, former members in the front row, Dennis and Julie McCrary, their two of their sons have been uh, members of my church and uh, just so grateful to see uh, so many people here. Feels like uh, in some ways, yeah, I just know the congregation well. I've admired it from afar for many years. Like Marshall said, we met in 2014. It was in Santa Monica where we met at Time Cafe and had a lunch there. And right away I said, I like this guy. And he tells me he's moving up to the Chicago suburbs. And I say, we got to keep in touch. And it's just been a real fun, uh, fun to watch uh, Marshall's ministry, the ministry here from afar for the last nine years. I'm really grateful for the gospel uh, work that you guys are doing. We have a lot of similar uh, convictions theologically and, and philosophies in ministry, except around infant baptism. That's about the only thing. So, <laughs> so but yeah, what a, what a joy to be here. And um, I'm going to open up uh, the word of God to us this morning. And uh, let me uh, pray though before I do that as well. Father, we love you this morning. Uh, we thank you for the gift of life and breath, and we come this morning to want to learn from you, to have your spirit teach us. And so I pray uh, you would keep our minds attentive to your word, uh, to anything that you might have for us. God, speak to us, we pray by your spirit. And I pray, Father, humbly and expectantly that any who come here this morning, apart from your son, that you would bring to faith, uh, believing faith in Jesus, that he is the Christ, and they would experience the salvation that he offers to those who call on his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what Diane mentioned in about three minutes, it's going to take me about 25 minutes to cover. Okay, so she gave kind of the cliff notes in three minutes. It's going to take me 25 minutes to cover. We're in the book of Numbers, as our brother just read. And just some quick context for the passage just before us that was just read to us. Uh, the events of Numbers took, roughly, uh, took place roughly between the years of 1444 B.C., and 1440, oh, 1444 to about, yeah, and roughly covers 40 years. And at the beginning of the book of Numbers, Israel had everything going for them. God miraculously delivered them from years of tyrannical slavery in Egypt as a response to their cry for deliverance. Things were good for the people of Israel, but the one thing they needed, which they did not have, was land. They had longed for a place to call home. They were the ransomed people of God, but they were nomads. They had just been rescued from 400 years of Egypt which meant they had to leave their temporary home and follow obediently into the unknown. The book of Numbers is about Israel's struggle with obedience and consequences of rebelling against God. You would read much about their groaning and their complaining. Their disobedience and groaning only worsened as they reached the cusp of Canaan. So God sent 12 spies into the land. Moses sent 12 spies into the land. Only two of them came back with a positive report, like, let's go for it. Let's do this. So God said, I'm done. I've had enough. Um, and at that point, he could not, I'm um, willing to withstand his, uh, his, uh, slander, any, his uh, slander any longer. Uh, he held his wrath at the plea of Moses, but sent in that generation to 40 years of wandering in the desert. And our passage in Numbers 21 occurs near the end of Israel's 41, 40 years of wandering. At this point, most of those who reject the God of Canaan have died, and now a new younger generation is being inaugurated into the people of God. And that's really the point that we get for the passage that was just read before us in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. So our brother just read it, so I won't read it, read it again. So what do we see happening here? What is happening in what was just read to us from Numbers 21, right? Israelites are on their way to the promised land. And to no one's surprise, based on their past performance, we read in verse 4, the people became impatient along the way, right? And what was their patience driven by? Well, verse 5 tells us. 
There was no food. There was no water. And we loathe this worthless food God has given to us, right? The food they're referring to is the manna that God had provided for them, a tangible reminder to them of his provision for them while they were wandering, right? That God cares for them. He's for them. He sees them. He knows their dependence on him. And what do they say? God, Moses, we are holding you into account for this situation. There's no food. There's no water here. This food is worthless, right? This is blasphemy at its core. Speaking against God, speaking against his appointed leader, against his good gifts. And then we see the Lord's response in verse 6. He sends fiery serpents among the people. They bite the people such that many of them died, right? These are venomous snakes, right? Snakes of the worst kind. Now the people respond. They realize their sinfulness of their grumbling. And in verse 7, we see their repentance. This is on us, Lord. Moses, plead to God for us to take the serpents away from us. God, please do this. For they knew only God could bring healing to the disease which he brought upon them. They saw their need for physical healing. They saw their sickness. And unless God intervened, they knew they were doomed. And then in verse 8, we read about God's provision, which is very peculiar, right? That he makes their illness. He makes a fiery serpent. He tells Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Very strange. A serpent, the emblem of a cursed animal, the very thing that's bringing death to your people and everyone infected with it, it's poison. All they have to do is look up and see it, and they will live. Strange, but it's what God uses. And in verse 9, Moses is obedient to what God commands, makes a serpent, sets it on a pole, when everyone who is bit looks up and li- looks up at it, They look and live, right? What a story. I mean, what a great Old Testament story in Numbers 21. What they went through is remarkably bizarre, right? Seems to be out of nowhere. Let's just face that. But in their mini salvation story, I want to draw out three gospel principles that point to a greater salvation story. This account is beckoning us to look to, to see this side of the cross, the three principles from this story that gives us almost all the clarity we need for the greater salvation story are the curse, the confession, and the cure. The curse, the confession, and the cure. First, the curse, and we see that in verses 4 and 5. They grumble. They complain. The people become impatient along the way, and they spoke against God and against his messenger Moses. They don't trust him. They forgot about his faithfulness, his power, and his word. Where are you, God? What have you done for us lately? They have become chronic complainers. They have critical spirits. What is their grumbling revealing about their deeper heart condition, right? It's what the Bible calls sin. All of our doubting, all of our impatience, all of our distrust is revealing the heart issue, which is at the root, which is sin. You see, we, like the Israelites, want to be in charge. We want life to go according to our plan and comfort. And when it doesn't, we will hold God to account. Now, I'm guessing for most of us in here, it's not God's lack of provision for food that causes our murmuring or impatience. But the question must be asked, what is it in our lives that we are most prone and tempted to say, God, I'm sick of this. I'm losing patience, God, with you. I'm holding you to account, God. Now, if you don't already know that, 
Ask him by his Holy Spirit to reveal that to you today. He likes those prayers. Those are prayers he usually doesn't wait too long to answer uh, when we ask him. What action does this lead to? The curse of death. Death, by the way, of the fiery serpents that the Lord sent to bite the people and infect them, right? That's verse 6. The Lord sent them, right? The Lord sent. Their sin leads to physical death. God has had enough. He doesn't trivialize sin, doesn't minimize it. He doesn't get it. Sin has serious consequences. And we see it right here in the form of fiery serpents that God unleashes at his people, which bring about their death, right? Romans 6.23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. The scripture teaches that the end result of our sin is death. Why do we have death in our world? How did it enter in? It's because of sin, right? We have a picture of it right here. And all of us have the bite. There's no one you have to wonder in this room. Has anyone in this room been, has the bite? Does anyone who I'll see this week have the bite? Romans 3.23 makes that clear. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't search the universe and find one who doesn't have the bite. 2,000 years ago, you could have. You could have found one, Jesus Christ, when he walked the earth. But since Jesus has ascended into heaven, there are none left. Okay, so, so first we have the curse, right? Thankfully, the story continues, or else this would be all gloom. So second, the confession. Verse 7. So to their credit, they see something has gone terribly wrong. There is a serious problem they have encountered that they need to do something about, and they cannot do it for themselves. Verse 7. We have sinned against God, and you, Moses, pray for us that God would take away these serpents. God, do something for us. We own this. This is on us. Moses, do something as our mediator, right? What do we see happening here? It's what the Bible calls repentance, an acknowledgement of our sin against a holy God where one pleads with God for mercy. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sin and then what is evil in your sight, right? This is on me, Lord. There's no finger pointing here, God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87, defines repentance well. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience, right? Biblical repentance is both a turning from sin and a turning to God to know him and to follow him. And can I add what I see, what we see in this story is often still true today. Troubles usually pave the way for our deepest repentance, right? We, like them, don't often see what's wrong with us until we get sick. It's usually not in moments of prosperity that bring us to a place where we call out to God, but it's often in the hard circumstances of life that are prerequisites for our pleading with God. They help us to see the condition of our hearts and our need for God and his grace, right? They experience the bite of a serpent that causes them to despair. Whatever those things that might be in our lives that bring us to the same place, thanks be to God. Right? Just to be clear, there's a repentance that leads to salvation. Right? You can't have the cure which to follow without the confession. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Jesus, when he came, he came with a call to repentance. The time is fulfilled, Mark 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Right? Like I said, the scriptures teach that all of us have been bitten by the serpent, but not all have acknowledged their sin. Right? You haven't experienced a cure because you have not made the confession and repented. It's someone else's fault. You're trying hard to be good. You keep doing and thinking if you do enough, it will, be, it will suffice. Could today be a day for you to obey Christ's commands, repent and believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves you and died for you? 
Many of us here, I would suspect, know Christ, and we need to be reminded that repentance is still a part of our lives. It's not something we did when we first believed and have since moved on from that as followers of Christ. Jesus calls us to search our hearts daily, to ask God by his spirit, to reveal any areas of our life where we have to make right, we have to, where we have to confess to him what's going on in here at the heart level. Maybe it doesn't manifest itself in actions like the Israelites did, but to God it's all the same. So we pray like the psalmist taught us in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? Might there be any area of confession God is calling each one of us to this morning? And God is so kind to us as our Heavenly Father. I wish I could tell you I'm an expert on repentance, but I felt I needed to repent for my lack of repentance as I was preparing even this week. Um, he is gentle and patient with us. So may, may we be encouraged that we have a mediator just like they did. They had Moses who was interceding for them. We have a far greater one in Jesus Christ who we are told in Hebrews 7 right now makes intercession for us, right? Consequently, he's able to save those to the othermost who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. What a savior. First the cursed, then the confession, lastly the cure. God's prescription, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. When bit, look at the bronze serpent and you live. That's our response, verse 9. For the Israelites, God provided a way of escape in the form of a bronze serpent. And when bitten, all they had to do was look and live. There could not be a more peculiar cure God provided for his people than this, right? It doesn't make sense. The very thing that is killing them, the emblem of sin becomes the thing God would use for his people to look at in order to be healed. I mean, the Jewish people knew that the serpent represented evil. Look at Genesis 3, right? It was an unclean animal, Leviticus 11. And this now becomes the instrument God uses to bring the cure to his people in need. Such a strange way to save his people. But the serpent on the pole was not a guarantee that they would not die. There was something they had to do. And that was to look at it in order to live. Not talk about it, not acknowledge it or question it, but to look and live. In order to fully understand what God is showing us here, we need to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, what our sister read earlier, and hone in on John chapter 3 for a very critical teaching Jesus gives us that ties back to Numbers 21 that we must grasp in order to experience the greater truth that the story is pointing us to. Because I said earlier, this passage almost gives us all that we need um, Almost. I left off one C. We have the curse, the confession, the cure, but we also need to know what is the cause? How is this possible? How can I see the cure? Jesus gives, that, that, Jesus gives us that answer in John chapter 3. I want to quickly summarize uh, verses 1 through 13, right? A very popular teaching of Jesus, one of my favorites, right? He meets this Jewish man, uh, teacher of the law named Nicodemus. He comes to him at night because he probably doesn't want, him, want to be known that he's going to see Jesus. He asks Jesus a question. Jesus turns the topic around right away and talks about the kingdom of God and says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, right? Kind of out of left field. How does one enter the kingdom of God? Uh, G, uh, uh, Nicodemus says, to be born again? What are you talking about? I'm an old man. Am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb? And then Jesus goes on to explain to this educated Jewish man how the new birth happens, right? We, just like we can't explain where the wind comes from, Jesus says, so it is with the new birth, right? The spirit comes upon someone. Flesh gives birth to flesh. So when a man and a woman come together, they give birth to a, a human, a flesh. 
This birth Jesus is talking about is a spiritual birth as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and causes us to be born again. Jesus says that must happen in order for someone to be able to see the cure. It's a miracle that you can't explain when it happens. It's the experience of being born again, right? You need the Holy Spirit in your life so that your eyes can see the cure that is before you, the eternal life that he is talking about. And then Jesus goes to Numbers 21, right? And he goes right, and he quotes Numbers 21 in John 3, 14 and 15. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus takes this great story from the Old Testament, Numbers 21, that of a bronze serpent being lifted up on a pole to bring life bring life to a snake-bitten people and says in the same way, I as the Savior on the cross bring eternal life to all people who will just do the same. Look and live. Look and live. Jesus comparing himself with a serpent? I mean, what's up with that? A serpent, as I alluded to, was a cursed animal. It represented evil. And now he's associating himself with that, this kind of animal? How can it be? It's the message of the cross, right? That Jesus himself took on our sin or that we could take on his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, who knew, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I love this quote by John Piper. In becoming like the snake, he was becoming the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took ours away. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? We, like the Israelites, on the way to the promised land, have the invitation to receive a cure. We may not have the curse of a serpent's bite, but we have a curse upon us. Like I said earlier, we've all been infected with the curse of sin. Every one of us here is born with it. It's not a disease we typically think of at the birth of a child. Maybe Marshall hasn't had this experience, but at LP, I've never had a new parent come up to me and tell me, we had this healthy new baby boy, new baby girl. We love this baby boy, girl. Everything is great, except that it was born with indwelling sin. I've never had a parent tell that to me. Do they tell that to you? Maybe your parents do here. No one at Lincoln Park ever talks about indwelling sin that their baby's born with. Um, I don't even, don't even morbid here, but our death will ultimately be tied to the sin we inherited at birth. It's unavoidable. We inherited it from Adam. And if we would just look to Jesus, no longer on a cross, but now ascended into heaven at the Father's right hand and trust in him, we will have the cure for new birth, the eyes of a heart looking to a savior. It's not doing, it's looking. You can't play a role in this kind of healing. So, believer in Christ, if I could speak to you for a moment. May we all be amazed afresh at the miracle God has wrought in our lives, right? What if I told you, let's say my phone was blowing up right now, and there's a breaking story right now. It keeps, you know, all, these, all the news headlines keep uh, popping up on my phone telling me, look what's happened. Hear me on this. This is, I'm going, I'm trying to be neutral here. I'm, I'm being, I am neutral here. This is just a story. I said this LP, they would go with it. Let's just say my phone is breaking. It's going crazy. And it's two massive headlines. Joe Biden has now become a, a Republican and Kevin McCarthy has become a Democrat. You would say, no. That can, that, that's not possible, right? There's no way, not possible. 
let's not think for a moment that our new birth is more of a possibility than any politician switching political parties. Ours is the great miracle. That God, if he has wrought the new birth in you, that's the great miracle. And may that, that what God has given us at the cost of a son, astonish us today as it did the first day we believed. Look what you, he has done for you. For you and me to experience life transformation, sins forgiven, life eternal, it came at a great cost. The Son of God bled and died for you. He became cursed for us so that we could become children of God. God really loves us, and he showed it to us by giving us his Son. So we strive each day, right, to behold him, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, right? For this is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this morning, our invitation is to come as, who the, as those who have been redeemed by his blood, to look at one who's exalted and magnified at the right hand of the Father, who at this moment is interceding for us to behold him, right? We will often pray for miracles in people's lives. When death is looming or you just received a horrifying prognosis, someone gets cancer, and we cry out, Lord, heal this person. Good prayers, right? We, we, we're commanded to do that. We pray that because we don't want to see this loved one die. Well, here's what we do know, right? If God does answer that prayer it's for healing, it's only temporary. Just like the Israelites in the desert, that was a temporary fix. Like, we, we all have expiration dates on us. We all essentially have terminal cancer of some kind. It's just a question or when or how it will take us. I did not know when I preached a sermon on June 25th at Lincoln Park that one of our great members, Martin Manislovis, at 23 years old, um, who had had health issues, uh, some 10 days later, the Lord would take him to be with him. I had no idea, right? And I couldn't help but think, as I even preparing for this, thinking what, I got to be a part of his funeral two weeks ago today, and the testimony with this brother, how he lived for Christ in six years from 17 to 23, was just incredible. I was thinking, I, what a legacy for Christ. So if we could only remember that the miracle of the new birth and the promise Jesus gives to us all who look to him, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, that which we only desired for a loved one, even for my brother Martin, for ourselves, that they live will only continue to take place, but in its fullest form. That's amazing, right? Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The key to our abundance, Christ's followers, not found in our bank account, our marital status, our influencer status, but the abundant life Jesus offers is found in him by looking and beholding him. Remember the curse, remember the confession, remember the cure, and then remember the cause. We have a sweeping invitation here from Jesus that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. No one comes by today by accident. And I pray that today God would awaken your heart to see that you need to be born again. Maybe you've been around Grace Church your entire life. Maybe, you've, uh, maybe you've, today's your first day and never been to church before. You've, called, you've, been, you've been associated with Jesus. You've heard of him, but you, in your heart, you've never trusted him as your savior. Do you want to experience a new birth? Here's what you have to do to be born again. Look to Jesus in faith. Behold him with the eyes of your heart and believe in him. I need to add, end uh, today by sharing the testimony of one of the greatest preachers of all time a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon, on his conversion day, January 6, 1850, on a cold, snowy day in England at the age of 16. God used this text before us today to bring him to believing faith in Christ. And might there be one here who will have the same testimony of this 19th century British man. So a couple paragraphs long, but it's such a good story. So why don't you 
Say this into your hearing, and then I'll pray from Charles Spurgeon. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. Alas, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text said was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him and buy. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that. Just, said, just now, look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I sent to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spend out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. You don't do that, Marshall, do you? No, okay. <laughs> However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted out only as a primitive Methodist minister could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else said. He said, I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the clouds were gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, Ere since by faith I saw that stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. May we be people who look to Christ and truly live. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we love Jesus Christ. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He alone paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross for us so that we could experience the cure that you have provided. And so we love him. We exalt him. I love this church. I thank you for their mission to want to make Christ known here on the North Shore of the city and throughout the furthest places of the world. And so, God, may we be a people who behold your greatness, um, who treasure Jesus Christ, um, who are satisfied by him and him alone. I pray in my own life and the lives of my brothers and sisters, each and every day as we grow older, Christ might become more sufficient for us, um, that we would 
taste and see that the Lord is good and he would be enough for us. Uh, so bless this people, bless this church. Thank you for their work. And I pray anyone in here, God, this morning who has never looked and seen uh, the cure that you have offered for the curse, God, could today be a day of salvation? God, nothing's too difficult for you. You could turn someone's heart. Right now, the, uh, the heart of a stream is like a king of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever. He, the heart of a king is like a stream of water. He turn, in the hands of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wills. God, you could turn someone's heart this morning to you. And I pray if any come in here apart from you this morning, today would be their day of salvation. And they would look to Jesus Christ to know the salvation he offers us. And so we bless you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.